On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, I am joined by weather guy Jay McQueen. He has been giving us nothing but grief all week with this freezing weather. Thought we better bring him in here and have him answer for himself. We talk a little about weather, but we talk about a lot of other stuff that's been going on in the world as well. Brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio, brightest conversation on a Hamilton podcast right now. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. After the week we've had, there's only one person that would make sense to bring in here. And that would be the guy that I am personally holding responsible for the fact that this entire area has been under a giant block of ice. That would be the guy whose voice you just heard. He just finished doing the weather. Now I drag him in here, Jay McQueen. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You're welcome. Checks in the mail. Oh, man. <laughs> you must have lots of fans on weeks like this when the Because we- you do get blamed for this stuff. Yeah, you know, everybody... Uh has their their idea of how much involvement you know I have in it <laughs> and the jury's still out on that but uh no it's um you know I think we had a, a really um sort of weak start to the winter uh, I mean we had some snow in November before winter even came and then December was was pretty tame and uh, even the first part of January was right and so we had uh I think we had it coming so we had uh you know it is Canada and some yeah and sometimes you get you know a big about a snow, but temperatures maybe aren't too cold, uh, or you get it really cold and it's just the frozen tundra. There's nothing out there, right? You know, we, so obviously everybody here lived through it and we had, you know, the cold and the snow. And, uh, as much as I love winter and snow and all that stuff, it's tough because it's hard to, to send your kids outside, uh, on a, with a good conscience, right. And, and play in the snow. Now the night, uh, here, kid, go lick the pole. Yeah. A couple Saturdays ago, we had, um, during the Saturday storm, we had the, uh, we had our kids out that night. I think the wind chill was minus 25 or something like that. But I thought, you know what, let's, they've been cooped up all day would, you know, we were busy the next day. So I thought, let's get them out. And they, and they had fun. How long did they last? Uh, I think we were out for, was it 30 or 40 minutes? Something mm-hmm. like that, right? We had to watch our little guy because he, he would fall and then the snow on his face and then that, you know, with the wind, that's not a good combo, but... You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. This has been a discussion point for a long, long time. The value of full day daycare and whether full day, because it's, I did it again, full day kindergarten. I'm going to do this all because (laughs) the, it's expensive. It is an expensive thing for the government to pay for. Mm. Is full day kindergarten really valuable for the development, for the education, for the growth intellectually of our children, or is it really something that governments use to buy votes from parents who have to go to work and don't want to pay for daycare? And so, hey, the government will pay for your daycare and we'll call it kindergarten and away we go. What do you think? Well, I mean, I can come at this only from the perspective of um, uh, my daughter is four now. And so... She started JK uh, in September, this past September, and in the year leading up to that, she was in daycare. Um, it was all day, you know, she was there from morning till afternoon in daycare, and now, uh, being that she started JK in the fall, it was all day, um, all day kindergarten. Um, from my perspective, uh, I love the fact that it's all day. Now, <laughs> you put it a little. Now you're asterisk. talking about it though as a child 
care service as a just as a parent um you that know, the kids are somewhere doing something yeah i mean we still have our, our little guy who's two who either is with us or with uh you know my mom he's not quite in a, a you know a real daycare setting yet but from the perspective of of being a parent you know we've got that sort of uh that's covered with with our daughter between and the hours are hilarious it's eight 15 until 2.35. So sometimes I, you know, it's like you have lunch and it's like, well, we got to go pick her up now. And it's like, you know, who who finishes work at 2.35 every day to be able to go and, and you know, and pick uh, your kid up from school, right? So, but, you know, from the standpoint of, look, before she started JK, um, she she knew some letters. She knew the odd number, that kind of thing. Um, but she, she can read now and you know I'm, I'm not saying that we couldn't have taught her that we read to her uh and with her all the time um but i've seen you know her her development grow in leaps and bounds since september in you know thing from things like yeah reading um even things like counting um things like that. I got to go in and, and sort of monitor how they learn uh, things they do uh, for an hour back in October. And uh, yeah, they the teachers ran a pretty tight ship, you know. Uh, a lot of times nowadays people think that, you know, teachers can't, you know, discipline anyone or they can't, you know, say anything uh, for fear of getting in trouble. Uh, but they were, you know, if the, and these are, you know, you don't expect, it's like the Uncle Buck scene, right? Like, I don't want to know a six-year-old who isn't a dreamer and isn't a silly heart and all that stuff, right? Well, you know, and so kids are playing around, but if the ones, you know, if some were doing, getting a little bit out of line, then the teacher, uh, you know, had something that she would say to them. And, and I, I appreciate how, how it was dealt with. So for me, from my perspective, um, yeah, it might, it's probably, yeah, like you said, extra money to, to run full-day kindergarten. Well, let yeah. me split it. What you just said, let me split it in two then, okay. because I think there's two issues at play here. And the first one is the idea that some people, that, that it, it, and I, no one can tell me that this does not factor in, and you've said it yourself, you're not hiding from it. For parents, this is very convenient. It's very convenient to have this available. You don't pay extra for it. Yeah. But should the... And we'll call it the daycare factor. Should the daycare factor even play into the discussion when it comes to a government looking at whether or not to keep to keep it? Should that be even part of the discussion? You might have to rephrase that for me. I'm not sure. So, leaving aside the educational component, yeah, the idea that some that I think every parent has that this is a convenient place for your kids, and you've said it, for your kids to go for a few hours a day where you can get stuff done and it doesn't have to be daycare. My question is, should that be part of the discussion about this? Education we can discuss, yeah. but should day, should kindergarten as daycare or daycare as kindergarten be part of the discussion when it comes to a government-run or program? Well, I, I think that, I think if it's a government-run thing, I mean, I, I just... Like the fact that it's that it's uh, it's school. It's part of the the board. It's part of the curriculum. It starts at JK and it goes goes all the way up. And I don't, um, you know, nothing against daycare. Um, when she was there, they she was at a great spot and and learned a lot of things there. And the, and the teachers, um, you know, the staff were fantastic. Um, but I think that the, you know, is there enough material? To cover, you know, to, to merit it going a full day for JK. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's, she's benefiting from it now. I, I you know, I was concerned about, because they nap in, in daycare and they don't nap them in JK. 
So I was concerned that, you That's know. not preparing for real life because we nap now. <laughs> yeah. The sleep at the switch, right? I'm still trying to wrap my head around whether or not kindergarten has true educational value or is merely just glorified daycare. Now, and that's not, that's, look, that's not besmirching the teachers, the kindergarten teachers who are, you know, they have a hard job. I'm not, I'm not saying they're just there watching the kids nap. That's not what I'm saying, but there was a study. Let me just point to this because I want to get to the educational side of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a U.S. government office of planning research and evaluation study. They had a, they had a program, they have a program called Head Start, which puts kids in full day daycare. And back in 2012, here's what the report said. This is a quote. Head Start studies showed initial positive impacts that dissipated as the children entered early elementary school. Moreover, recent longitudinal data from the experimental evaluation of early Head Start showed a similar pattern of early positive impacts that were not sustained into elementary school. All we can say is after the initially realized cognitive benefits for the Head Start children, these gains were quickly made up by children in the non-Head Start group, which back to my words now, kids who went to full day kindergarten initially got a big bump and you talked about how your daughter's now reading and everything, but by grade two, all the kids who hadn't gone in this program, hadn't had full day daycare, had caught up. There's only, your brain picks up information. Children's brains are very absorbent and they yeah. pick up and they catch up. And so that leads to the question, is is there, re, is there a, do we need our kids to be smart in grade two or grade 12? Well, yeah, and I think, you need them to be smart in grade 12. And, uh, you know, I, from, uh, you know, from experience, colleges nowadays, I mean, in universities, I find that there were, you know, universities had strict um, stuff in terms of, you know, uh, the word I'm looking for is, uh, you know, your qualifications to get in, you mm-hmm. have certain marks, certain courses, all that stuff. Um, college, they sort of, you know, put on a similar um, front that they, they needed the same things. But then when you see sometimes the quality of the – when I looked around the class that I was in years ago, I thought, gee whiz, like what are some of these guys doing in here, right? So uh, to answer your question, yeah, grade 12 is when you want people to be smart. Uh, it, I think it's great that my daughter can read a little bit in kindergarten. Um, but if it's going to, you know, I guess maybe do you have to then adjust the curriculum uh, accordingly so that, you know, once you get to grade two, the, what you're learning in grade two is a little bit uh, more, more difficult more difficult than it is now without, you know what I mean? But then the fear, I'm sure the argument would be, but then we're going to lose the kids that didn't do this and then yeah. kids fall behind and then we have to fail kids and you don't want to do that. Here's the, as this was going on this week, the last week and a half, whatever it is that this discussion has been going on, this has been the point that has been coming to my mind because the number that has been thrown around is the average Ontario family can save up to about $6,500 a year with kindergarten because that's daycare cost that is not going to be spent. Mm -hmm. If Ontario families truly believe what they are saying, that kindergarten is not about daycare, that it is about education. If they truly believe that their children are this far ahead because of the education they're getting, what would we do? How many of them would back that up by saying, all right, so if the government, which is tapped for money, were to say, you're going to pay for kindergarten on an income basis. So if you make this much, you're paying this much and Mm -hmm. low income will get it for little or nothing. But how many people, if they had to pay the same amount of money 
for kindergarten that they would for daycare. How many people are going to put their kids in there? <laughs> yeah. I don't think you're going to have the same number of people saying it's essential. No, no. You'll, you'll have, yeah, if, uh, that's where where the line is drawn, right? Where you have to put your money where your mouth is. And if <laughs> if people have to cough up that amount of money to send them to the kindergarten, then, you know, yeah. Because we know some do, right? We, we know yep. there are parents who put their kids in Montessori schools or whatever because they believe in it. But that's yeah. exactly what you're talking about. I'm putting my money where I believe so strongly in this that I will pay for that. Yeah. I, I like, I'm not, yeah. I, I don't know what I think honestly about whether kindergarten is in the long term dramatically helpful. I'm just really reluctant. I, I'm not to the point where I'm going to say, I can tell you for absolute certain that kindergarten is a lifesaver for these kids. It is making a massive difference in the long term life of these kids. I don't, I don't know that I'm there. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, again, I'm coming at it from the, you know, our first, uh, our first kid is in junior kindergarten it's all day um you know i I talked about stuff about reading and numbers and all that stuff but also just from a standpoint of maybe a little more structure than socializing and structure yeah yeah then then uh daycare i mean daycare was great there they had structure there there was rules and all that stuff but for the most part it was um you know you you come and go when you want uh so whether we got her there at at 8.45 or whether we showed up with her at 10 o'clock, um, you know, and maybe maybe it's a little bit to our, uh, it's a benefit to us as well because it takes the guesswork out of, you know, how long can we take in the bathroom in the morning? It's it's okay. Got to be somewhere. She needs to be there at 8.15, so we got to get a move on. So, you know, I, maybe from the, that perspective as well, I like it because we know when it starts. Uh, as much as I don't like how early it ends, we, you know, you always, you know, you have a, a plan, right? I, m- my thought on a lot of these things, and we're going to talk about another one in just a moment, but my thought on a lot of these things, honestly, is anything that we now say we're going to question that is a government program that you are given for quote, quote, free, because you are paying for it with your taxes. Let's not sure. confuse ourselves about that. But any program that we are now talking about pulling back because we don't suddenly has become absolutely essential. We can't survive without this program. And I look and I go, well, what about all the people that survived before the program started? And are we, are our kids today, really when they come out of grade 12, who have all the all-day kindergarten, are they all that smarter than the kids who were 20 years ago? Are they doing better in school than the kids 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago? Um, That that to me is where you start looking and say, okay, does that mean, and I think most people would say no, does that mean then we have to do school differently or maybe we have to revisit kindergarten and go, okay, is it really essential? Radley at 900chml.com. I'd love to hear from people whether you think this is good or not. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900chml. Would you ever get a tattoo? Ever thought of one? I, I, for years it was no, uh, but maybe, I don't know. And I, would it be a picture or would it be a, like wording of some kind? It would probably be um, words or numbers or something. Well, I don't know if you heard this story. I don't know if everyone at home heard this story, but let me offer a, a word of advice. 
if you ever are going to do that. Because Ariana Grande, who's a singer, for those many people know who she is, uh, she went to get a tattoo done this week. And for reasons that I'm not exactly sure why, she decided to get it in Japanese lettering. I guess it looks cooler than English lettering. And wanted to get Seven Rings, which is the name of her new album. Okay. So she went to a tattoo place to get Seven Rings tattooed in Japanese. Well, somehow, I don't know if the tattoo artist was drunk or not Japanese or the person who played a joke on her, she got her hand tattooed. And when she showed it on Instagram, people started getting back to her saying, that doesn't say seven rings. (laughs) (laughs) That that tattoo says Japanese barbecue grill. (laughs) 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 And so now, now she's got this problem. She's got a, like, it's a tattoo. It's not a... It's not something you can erase. <laughs> so she takes a Japanese friend yeah. to go to get this thing fixed. I don't know how she's going to get it fixed, but oh, she goes man. and tries to get it fixed. Well, I don't know what was wrong with her Japanese chaperone who didn't clearly understand that you read Japanese from top to bottom, not left to right or whatever. So she got her new tattoo done, put it on Instagram to say, see, I fixed it. And people started writing back saying, now your tattoo says Japanese barbecue finger. <laughs> <laughs> at this uh, point, at this point, you just get a big black line put over yeah. the whole thing and just say, it's just a smudge. Yeah. My album's called Blackout. <laughs> yeah. That's why if album. I'm ever going to get a tattoo, I'm going to do it stone cold sober in <laughs> English on a spot on my body where I can see what the person's doing. Oh man. That I'm, I mean, I'm sure that has to have happened to people before because people people do like to get. Go online. Look at the mistakes in tattoos. Oh, there are some awesome ones. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. The other big government discussion issue that was being bandied about over the last little while and came into the news again today And yesterday, the NDP says they received a draft report that would create a two-tiered healthcare system in Ontario, that private healthcare would also exist along with public healthcare. And this, this is such a hot button issue that almost raising it in some corners is almost seen as like an evil or a non-starter. You can't even talk about two-tiered healthcare. It's so unfair. It's so wrong that we can't even have this discussion because if you raised it, you're a, an elitist fan of the rich who doesn't care about poor people. Are you, for, before we get into this, are, are you, and you're welcome to be, but I mean, are you one of those, do you believe that, the, that there is an inherent evilness or inherent wrongness about discussing two-tiered healthcare? No, uh, I mean, look, I, I know that people, it's one of those uh, p- points of pride that they like to wear on their sleeve that when, uh, you know, talking to people from whether it's the U.S. or somewhere else and, uh, you know, we talk about our, you know, things that we might have been in the hospital for and we we say oh you know what yeah it was free or whatever and they you know they had uh had somebody who uh free and you had air quotes on free yeah, since we quotes, are paying right, for yeah. it um you know i had uh somebody i know who needed um oh, what the heck was it uh, who had kidney stones and it uh the bill was roughly uh 65 or 70,000 dollars american and it was one one night's hospital stay you know, um, so it's things like that where you go, holy cow, right? And so having a discussion about two-tier system up here, um, you know, I don't want to go to a model where uh, unless I really want to, 
you know, pay that kind of money for that kind of service. Um, I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, I think we have to keep the integrity of the public system as it exists, um, as expensive and difficult as it may be to do that. Um, I think we could do a better job um, cutting a lot of the red tape and bureaucracy out of out of these, uh, you know, whether, whether it's hospital administrations or health boards and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, frontline nurses and doctors is where I think you could probably talk to everybody who anybody who's been in the hospital and they would say, look, yeah, we you know we waited so long to to see a, a doctor or a nurse, right? And once you see them, then it, it's all good. But um, if you have extra money and you know you want to pay for a service because you want a, a certain a certain thing done or you want it in a certain time frame, um, you know I don't see anything wrong with that being an option. See the argument that is made commonly is that that would provide better, faster service for rich people. So you need a new kidney and you can go to the front of the line because you've got money for that. And look, I I understand that concern. I really do. I, I think that that is a in some ways, a very legitimate concern. The difficulty I have with the immediate dismissal of the two-tiered healthcare system now, if one was ever going to be proposed, is there's a story this week that was in various media that talked about the average day or the average week in Ontario now, a thousand people are spending, are on beds in hallways of hospitals. There's not rooms for them. We don't. So the system that we've got as it is right now is not working. And we don't have the money just to throw another $3 billion a year at medical. So how do we find more money? And if you can have someone and you can set, I don't care if you set the prices high, if you want to set crazy prices and someone is willing to pay those prices, A, that is money that flows back into the system for more hospital beds or whatever, and B, it takes people out of the lineup. It would shorten the lines for the people who are in the regular public system. Mm-hmm. I would be against the concept of being able to sell organs. Like that, that's, that's the part where it becomes really dicey, right? Mm-hmm. Because now I've got a two-tier healthcare system. I need a liver and you have a liver and yeah. you go, well, I could donate it or I could sell it to that guy for 10,000 bucks. That I should see, be, that, yeah. that kind of stuff. No, no, that, that's not. Yeah. But I, I look at this and I go, I, I, I really believe that this is something we need to have a discussion about and not just dismiss it immediately just because. Just because we can solve some problems. It may create some problems, but we can solve some problems if we were to have this discussion and if we were to go down the road and look at how a two-tiered healthcare system might work. And if you want to set prices at a level that is crazy and people are still willing to pay for them, Okay. It's their money. It's their money. Let us say that there were a few people who needed to have a surgery, needed to have a knee replacement surgery, and it was a $50,000 surgery if you paid for it privately. And you found six people who were able to decided over the course of the year that they want to pay that 50,000 bucks to jump the queue and get their knee replacement surgery done. And they were willing to pay the money. It was a crazy amount of money. That's $300,000 that goes into the system. That's going to pay the salary of a doctor, an additional doctor you could now hire. So yes, they've jumped the queue and let's say each surgery took five hours. Well, there's less than a week's worth of hours. So you've tied him up for a week with these queue jumpers, 
but you've now got an extra doctor in the system for 51 weeks of the year. That, to me, makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. That was my initial concern was, well, you've, you've got the, the queue jumping, which so somebody has money. It's one thing to just say, well, they have money. They can, you know, uh, go and pay for this surgery. But my thought was, well, but if they're jumping in line and using that that same doctor that has a waiting list of people, then things get a little dicier. But like you said, with that money uh, that you get from the queue jumpers, you can hire an extra doctor. So, and and let's say now that that happens, we've got that one in knee in in orthopedics, and you've got one in cancer, or you know, or two or three, maybe you could. Be, mm-hmm. a, and the issue becomes if you have this. I use an example, and it's a poor example, and I grant you it's a poor example, but if you want to go to a concert, and it's a big-name concert, you might pay a 1000 bucks for front-row tickets. Well, you could buy that. You may not... That may be a lot of money for you. For somebody, it may be nothing, but for you... But you could probably scrape together the money or borrow it or whatever if you want, but we don't say everybody has to get the same tickets. Yeah. Everyone has to be able to have the same price. No, it's it, we're fine with some people buying the expensive ones and some people not. And... The challenge with this is you can't do it in a way that is, if you were ever going to do the two-tier thing, you have to make it, I think, a very pricey thing to do. It, it only works if you're creating very high prices for the services because you don't want everybody doing it. Yeah. Right? You, you can't have everybody doing it, but if you have very high prices, so a small number of people that don't really screw up your whole system, do this, but f- flood a lot of money back into the system, that to me is a positive. And if a few rich people get their treatment first, yeah, but think of the other people now who yeah. we may not have to have lines for. Yeah, you don't have to pay extra taxes for you know keeping the healthcare system that you've come to know and, I don't know, love, but like. You think you, know, you love the idea of it, but in practice... It doesn't always, it's not always, you know, efficient, sh- shimmery and yeah. efficient, right? I, if you, right now, as I said, we know, we've read the stories this week. We know that our healthcare system is not working perfectly. There are all these people on beds where people are waiting for stuff. As surgeries are getting canceled. We, we, and we can't just keep dumping billions and billions and billions more. And we have an aging population. If you can find a way to separate some rich people from their money that will pay it into this system, yes, a few people are going to get ahead. Yes, a few people are going to get to the front of the line, but it's going to mean more doctors, possibly more beds, as you say, less taxes for everyone else, less waiting time. That to me is a fair, is a good trade-off. It's certainly a trade-off worth discussing. Absolutely. And going back to what we were talking about before is, you know, how quickly do services that the government provides become essential? Um, you know, if, if you, if this healthcare system is so revered and loved and, you know, and it's so sacred to everybody, then the government can't, something has to give, you know? And so maybe you have to take a look at, and you come, maybe we go back to maybe it's not full day kindergarten anymore. As much as I, you know what? As much as I find it valuable uh, at this point with my first kid in junior kindergarten for a full day, um, you know I'm a realist and that I know that the government can't pay for everything and, and cover. Well, everything. now just a second though, there are people who believe it can. <laughs> 
I'm not. I'm not being oh, funny. I, I know. I know. There are people who say just keep taxing the rich, and there aren't that many rich. To we know this. There have been study after study after study. There aren't enough rich people with enough money that increased taxes still cover the extra things that we need. So we have to find more creative ways. We have to and so get the rich to pay for voluntarily. Some to voluntarily pay, and they probably will. Mm-hmm. They probably will. And and l- let's use a worst case example, Jay. Let us say that, let's say that you are a billionaire, and so your family has a health crisis, and seven people need it. Okay, so you now are willing to pay fifty or a hundred thousand dollars for each of them. Well, that's a lot of money that's going into the system that we can, as I say, for those seven people, that might be a week's worth for a doctor. Mm-hmm. But that's fifty one other weeks where he can treat other or she can treat other people, that doesn't seem crazy. No. That doesn't, and it doesn't seem unfair. Well, it may seem a little unfair, but there's lots of things that are unfair. Yeah. But on balance, it seems to me that that's something we should at least explore. How much money could we inject into the system? How many more doctors and nurses could we hire? And how fast, how much would that help alleviate the lines in the waiting period? And if it does it, Like you said, it's silly not to at least have the conversation, you know? And I think that's... that's although nobody, although some people would say that that's evil to even yeah. do that, but yeah. when we come back, we are going to hear from Ron Joyce. He passed away today, but back in 2015, we chatted about the origins of the Tim Hortons franchise. We're going to replay that interview for you. Fascinating stuff. Some really interesting bits in there. Stick around for that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We heard today, we heard this afternoon, that Ron Joyce passed away. Ron Joyce, of course, former police officer who partnered with Tim Horton and eventually became the man who helped turn Tim Hortons from a small one-branch donut store into a an empire. And Jay, I would argue that probably the most distinctive Canadian brand out there, at least up there in the discussion. Uh, yeah, probably, uh, the most, yeah, I would I say. I mean, maybe Molson sure. would be in there or Labatt's or maybe yeah. Canadian Tire, but I mean, Tim Hortons, when you're, when you're talking, people outside Canada, when they talk about Canada, they often will mention Tim yeah. Hortons or whatever. So, uh, a, a guy who had enormous impact might've had, and we talked about this, this, uh, this afternoon with Scott Thompson, might've had more impact even in the community as far as being even having more of a legacy because he was going to be the money behind, or he was the money behind an NHL bid. He could have been the owner of an Mm -hmm. NHL team in Hamilton if that had arrived. That would have been interesting to see how that even would have made him more of a, of a name and a brand and everything else in the city. But, uh, back in 2015, January 6th of 2015, we chatted with him on the show we were talking, that was around the time that the Tim Hortons company was opening the, reopening the first store, the one at the corner of Wellington and I think it was Ottawa and Ottawa. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. And that was where store number one was that was started in Hamilton and it had all been redone. Many people have been there by now. It's two floors. The bottom floor is a Tim Hortons and the upstairs is also Tim Hortons, but it's more of a museum and a, and there's a statue of Tim Hortons outside. So we caught up with Ron Joyce that day, January 6th, 2015. And we chatted about the origins of the Tim Hortons branch, the brand, the empire and how it happened. Here it is. Ron, thanks for being here tonight. Well, nice, uh, nice to be here, Scott. I'm the anniversary of, um, uh, of the uh, 50th year, which 
I I think it's getting closer to 51 now, though. It is getting closer to it, for sure. Have, have you seen the new place, by the way? Uh, I've drove by it, yeah. What, what do you think? Well, I think it's the same as it was before in one sense. <laughs> Very little parking. <laughs> would would you have been a, a are you a historic kind of guy? Would you have preferred them to rebuild it to look like the first one for history's sake, or are you happy with the way it looks now? Uh, the first store was a, uh, I have to be honest with the first store was a horror show. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? What door? Listen, I'll tell you something. The gentleman that really started Tim Hortons was not Tim Morton, it was a guy called Jim Charade. But but Jim knew as much about the food industry as <clears throat> very few. He also had a bunch of hamburger places in Toronto and what have you. But the interesting thing about the first store in Hamilton there in Ottawa and Dansmere, you had a men's John on the right and the women's John on the left, and that's the entrance into a food store. i got to tell you something. It, it wasn't really, really great planning, but it was an old service station. But <laughs> I think back on it. Because really, Scott, it really began for me. It'll be uh, 50 years, March the 4th, when I left the Hamilton Police Department and walked into that store on March 4th, 1965. And I really believe that's when the, the thing began. Well, I mean, as you say, you were a cop in Hamilton, and I know, you know, the stereotype is that cops know something about donuts and coffee, but nonetheless, did you really know anything about the food business when you decided to go into it? And the problem is, neither did Shim Charade. <laughs> I was the blind lead in the blind. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it worked out pretty good. Did you I know think. Did you know Tim Horton at the time? No. I had no idea who he was. Well, no, I shouldn't know that. I knew he was a hockey player. But uh, Jim Charade was the uh, gentleman that was really was the, uh, the sort of so-called entrepreneur. Okay, so when you walk in and you decide to get involved with this, uh, for people who don't know, go right back to the beginning. When you walk in there and decide to get involved, what is on the menu at the original Tim Hortons? Oh, it was all donuts back then. Coffee was a small part. We only had uh, 13 stools, and it was very, very small. There's very little parking, as it is today. <laughs> I think we're trying to keep that tradition going, I guess. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, keep the drive through so people don't have to park. <laughs> I only unloaded the drive through there or not. It. But anyway, uh, the uh, it, it was an interesting time for me because uh, the, my trainers use a Ouija board to show me how to what we should be making, and, uh, and I'm not sure. That's Seriously, manual. <laughs> Seriously, they did that. Yeah, yeah. I was done my training. You got a Ouija board out, and, and that was that was my um, that was my work. That, that was my home uh, recipe book. Everything a Ouija board, and the guy sitting there and, and pushing this thing around the table, but. And so, so with the stuff that was there already, how much did you immediately change, or did it take some time before you started making alterations oh, to what it, it served? Oh, it was a horror show. They used to make donuts days. We gave them for days. We gave them up. They called so-called keeper box, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they wrap them up in plastic. And and this, uh, uh, you know, the, the the idea of having a nice fresh donut right out of a keeper box was uh, well, that was a bit of a secret. <laughs> And and the and you say coffee was actually secondary back then. 
Yeah, it was very little coffee. And so I am assuming then that the coffee they would have served would not have been some sort of special blend that you had devised. It was just something you'd no, go to the store no, and no, buy. No, it was just off the shelf. They didn't know anyone. They didn't know anyone. I mean, really speaking, Jim, it wasn't Tim, it was Jimmy. But, he, you know, he was a bit of a character. I got to give him credit, though. He persevered. Then he found a fish on the police department and handled it. They had to make it work. So when you, when you, Ron, when you, talking with Ron Joyce, the, the man who really built Tim Hortons into the empire, it is when you got involved with this then, um, and, and you said you didn't know a whole lot about the food industry, how do you actually go about turning something that you've described as a horror show into some place that people would want to go to? Oh, you know, here, no, here, here's the thing, Scott. I got very lucky in, in one sense. And uh, about two years before that, <clears throat> I used to live on Kensington Avenue North, and I walked over to London, Maine. <clears throat> and a friend of mine I was in the Navy with had a Dairy Queen. And he and I <clears throat> had a reunion because we are on the same ship. And we went to Korea and all that. But anyway, <clears throat> he closed the store, and, <clears throat> and we happened to have a bottle of good $3 bottle of vodka or what? <laughs> Weiser's what? Rye whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> and he and his wife and my wife and I, we sat there and talked about this industry, food service. And I fell in love with it. And I uh, no talking to him. So I went back to the house and the spectator had an ad in the paper for Dairy Queen. So I bought the one at, uh, down on uh, Queenston Road. At, and it uh, <clears throat> right across from school. And there was a Dairy Queen there, so I bought that. That was my first entry into the food service industry. And I fell in love. I made three times as much money selling fun as I did uh, selling traffic tickets. And i got to tell you something. The customers are a heck of a lot more. Ab- absolutely. Was, was the first Tim Hortons, when you first took over that store, was it always a moneymaker? Was it busy at the start, or was there a chance that this thing could have gone under right at the start? for the week so we were doing about a thousand dollars a week in, and uh, in, in profit in profit making no sales oh, in sales okay sales. wow and, and was oh, there was there dollars a week well fifty thousand dollars a year roughly wow was there much competition at the time for that kind of thing no not at all, really it was unique in a sense and you know the big day of the week was sunday and uh, people going to church, come back in there and get product. So, and then, and then over, over the years, get started building up, building up. And, and I used to schedule my show, myself to work there, especially on Sunday because they do the books. And I'd win in the evening. <laughs> on a Sunday night because there's no customers anyway. So that's why I work. So, so clearly back then, I mean, it's, it's pretty modest to begin with. There, it doesn't sound like at the start there were any real plans for world domination with this kind of thing. It was keep the one store alive. Well, it wasn't really. A, I think we wanted to dominate Hamilton, but not in the world. But because but we opened the second store in May, and I had to borrow the money to do that on Concession Street. And um, I figured if they opened the second one, going to destroy the first one. I think probably now there's probably 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 of them in Hamilton, so I don't know. How? But I'm going back a long time ago. A, no, that, absolutely. That, absolutely. How involved? 65. And that was the real beginning, really, of Hortons. And then, uh, 
uh, the, uh, in my opinion, because uh, up, up to then there had been two franchises, he went broke. And the store was being managed by nuts and, uh, and so on and so forth. But well, interesting times. But I, looked, I was talking to Ed and at all. Uh, tonight, he took over the store from me. And I think of that, the number of policemen, the uh, Hamilton policemen that came on the business with him. Our first guy was Pat McGrinder. He's deceased now, but a good buddy. He ran the department. He wanted to, he wanted to get in the food service industry. And then we had John Kerr. We had, oh, let's see, I can go on and on. And the Al Murray had number six store in Ottawa, or uh, Upper James and Mohawk. And uh, that became the number one store in the system. And, uh, you know, back in those years, golly, we had fun. How involved in those days was Tim Horton? Was it was he hands-on, or was he just the name behind it? No, he was just the name behind it, really. Did he show up often? Well, he was a friend. I mean, no, he, in the summertime, he would try and come around, but he really knew nothing about the industry. Uh, I, I, <laughs> funny part of his story with him, when we had to, store number 17 was our training store on Trafalgar Road in Oakdale. <laughs> and, and Timmy took two weeks off. No, there you go. He took some of us in the summertime, like from hockey. And I gave the baker two weeks off. And I said, okay, he wanted me to teach him to bake. After burning himself, <laughs> I don't know how many times after three days. That ended his training program. <laughs> and guess what? I had still had to work the other wrestlers. Joey Perry, <laughs> making the Darren Donuts for the stores. But anyway, that's a long time ago. Uh, you, you, yeah, it sounds like it. And you have talked about how you were friends with him. I understand that... Uh, um, we buddies. Oh, well, I understand he called you Blub. Is that right? He called me Blub. Well, was that, is that the something night, to do with size? The night he died, we were set together at 4 o'clock in the morning in the office talking about the industry. We had 38 stores in. And we are sitting there. And I said, Timmy... I've got to go home. I've got to, I've got to be in Cerny tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. It's now 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, so he came over and he said, I love you, blood. And he said, I'll lock up. And uh, I got in my car and I went home. I, I convinced him to come stay in my house rather than drive to Buffalo. <laughs> and the funny part of the story is he went by me. Uh, well, halfway between Oakville and Burlington, and uh, last I saw him, that was the night the he next, died. Yeah, the next time I heard anything about Timmy was when Tim Mac called me from St. Catherine, told me to, that Tim had been in an accident, and he said, uh, "I said, well, how bad is it? He's dead. I knew I should have brought him that, and it's a lip car and." Uh, and that's the first I heard. But so anyway, that was, was bringing back memories to me right now. I'm an old guy now. I'm almost 85. He's, and I go back to memories when I was only 35 then. Wow. And uh, Scott, how old are you? Uh, me? I'm 47. Well, you know, you're, you're, you know you're, you've got a great future. And, and life is an exciting adventure as you'll ever get, especially with your life. Because we only get one kick at it. Absolutely, and, uh, absolutely. And I've had just a marvelous journey. Well, it, it, it has, I mean, obviously the coffee and donut and restaurant business has been 
Very good to you. I was going to ask you if you think, could this, could this story, could your story, could the Tim Horton story have started now in the Starbucks and McDonald's and everything Absolutely else? Absolutely not. We were in the right spot at the right time in history. You know, that was back in the beginning. There was no McDonald's then, for instance, in right. when we opened. And the whole food service industry was, it took off. I mean, you, you know, in here within Canada, we had country style and, which I think originally was an American chain. Ain't no Harvey's and, and Swiss Chalet and so on and so forth. And then the, a lot of the American chains come in. But today to develop a, a 4,000 store chain, like when I left the company, we had over 2,000 stores. And, and uh, I sold to Wendy's because I really believe there's a great future for the combo for the gang. For Horton to expand with Wendy's in the United States, and I made a mistake. But boy, we all make mistakes. Uh, that was one of my biggest ones. But uh, having said that, the chain is uh, now going through another evolution. I think Burger King have now purchased it. I don't know where that's going to take it, but uh, it's a long way from this, the beginning when the hockey player and the next placement. That's absolutely right. Ron, why, just very quickly, because we're almost out of time, you say it's a mistake. Why, why do you now look at your sale of it to Wendy's as a mistake? They weren't the company I thought they were. You know, they were not, they were not near as aggressive in, in, uh, in, in putting things together. But, but that's, 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 that's an easy hindsight, because we know that today. Hmm. Now, uh, I think the reality is, uh, if if I had to do it all over again, in that way, uh, I was afraid to go public, and that was a huge mistake because that's really what the biggest mistake was. They should have taken the thing public hmm. myself instead of they did it. And uh, look at it today, the stock is one of the highest. Sure. And and really, you know, what made it work? It was Hortons. Obviously, it wasn't Wendy's. It yeah. Was you must. You and must, that's why Burger King has bought it. Look at it; it's a jewel. Well, you must have looked at the stocks the day that it did go on sale, and everybody was clamoring to get it. You, you must have looked at that with some wide eyes that day. <laughs> I tell you something, Scott. <clears throat> That's a great thing about history. You can't do much about it. <laughs> That's true enough. Ron, we got to go, but I, I want to just finish with this because I understand there's a really nice, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, a nice sort of wraparound to this story. Your son ended up marrying Tim Horton's daughter. Is that not correct? That's right. Jerry Lynn. And she is going to be at the opening of the store tomorrow. I understand that. That is fantastic. That's a great, uh, that's a great little piece of, well, of here, information. There's the interesting things part of that story. If I could got briefly. Absolutely. Uh, I, when, uh, when Timmy died, I wanted a Horton to come back inside the management of the team. And I, and, I, and he had four daughters, but Jerry Lynn, I thought would be the logical one. And, Unfortunately, she was on the store in, in Trenton, and she met my son, and she fell in love, and they fell in love, and they ended up getting married. So there goes my trainee <laughs> in management. But anyway, but, and they've done a heck of a good job running up eight stores. Well, absolutely, and she'll be, I understand, as I say, she'll be at the opening tomorrow. People could say hi to her. And, Ron, really appreciate you taking time today to talk about this and to reminisce a bit. It's uh, It's obviously, as I say, the... The thing that people think about when they think about Hamilton, the Ty, Tim Hortons and the Ty Cats, and now they're connected at the hip, so uh, so it's all good. Ron, thanks for doing this Listen, tonight. One last shot to Scott. Yeah. Hamilton is where, where this chain began. It wasn't Toronto. It was, it was, it was Hamilton. 
and an awful lot of the store owners that became part of it were Hamilton policemen. And I know the chief one time, I thanked him for getting, training some great people uh, to be uh, donut operators. And <laughs> So anyway, Scott, good talking to you. Thanks. Maybe you're just listening to me, I suppose. That's okay, Ron. Really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. That was Ron Fox, uh, Ron Foxcroft, Ron Joyce, wrong, wrong Ron, uh, Ron Joyce, who passed away today at 88, who was the man who was behind the Tim Hortons franchise largely, was the guy who helped you, well, you heard him there. He built it into, at the time, a 2000 store chain and um, then sold it. And Jay, what really, uh, I had not listened to that since I talked to him. I, that was the first time, I, so I was being refreshed on that as well. I hadn't heard that interview. What really stands out is, at the end, his honesty, I guess, about the two big mistakes that he thinks he made in business. Yeah, uh, well, selling it off to Wendy's. Uh, that was one of them. Yeah. And not going public was the yeah. other. But you look at a guy like him and the success that he took, as I say, when he when when he's talking about the very first one and what mm. a horror show it was, Yeah, to think that you could get that to a 2,000 store chain is just, uh, I don't have the business mind to wrap around that. Yeah. And the other thing that I found interesting there too uh, was um, that donuts was the main thing. Mm-hmm. It, coffee was kind of was just there. It was like an afterthought. They didn't sell much coffee, I think he said. You know, but now it's kind of like as much as the menu has expanded to have all, you know, wraps and sandwiches and Soup chicken and whatever, strips yeah. now and everything, um, you know, but now it's, it's let's go for a Hortons and it still, it still means coffee. But it was interesting to me to hear that originally it was actually the donuts that were the big thing and then the coffee was just kind of there. So, Well, what nobody, does anyone actually say, sometimes you'll say, let's go get Timbits, but nobody says, let's go get a fritter. Right. Let's go get a double-double. Yeah. And the funny thing is that somehow double-double has become synonymous with Tim's. No one's ever, I, does anyone say, let's go get a double-double and mean Starbucks? I don't think no, so. No, no. You say something like a, you know, a grande, right. no fat, foam, <laughs> slim, extra, extra hot. hot, whatever, right? No, but if you say double, du- and double, double is just a, a mix of what you want in your coffee. Yeah. And yet that's come to be almost synonymous with Tim Hortons yeah. now. Uh, some great stories there. The fact that he didn't even know Tim Horton when he started this thing, mm-hmm. that that was just sort of part of the, yep. part of the package deal. But yeah. And, and here's one other thing that, uh, we got to go to a break in a second here, but that, uh, you know, there was only so much we could ask and he was fantastic and it, it's, you know, uh, and we don't unfortunately get a chance to follow up, uh, which is why we're playing that today because he passed. But mm-hmm. Tim Hortons, Tim is not his first name, is not Tim Hortons' first name. I didn't know that. Tim is not even his middle name. Because, I you know, if you okay, if you don't like your first name, you go by your middle name. No, no. How different would Hamilton be in our <laughs> world be if he had gone in his chain, if he'd gone by his real name, which was Miles. Miles Horton. Miles Gilbert Horton. If he'd gone by Miles Horton, could, would, would our would our lingo, our vernacular, our conversation, I got to go get a Miles. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I'm going over to Miles. Going to Miles. Got which which some, in Canada, he'd have to change it to kilometers anyway. Yeah, but it's a Miles bits. It it just doesn't work. No. Nope. And this is part of, and I think that Ron Joyce is absolutely correct and I'm not, I'm not talking about necessarily the business side of things because I don't know, but when he says we're at the right place at the right time, like I think there's a lot of parts of this that you can put together into one big pot and say, 
it worked because a lot of things fell into place together. Yeah. Which I guess is the story of any great mm-hmm. success. But, you know, there, there is a book by um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Have you, ever, you ever read Malcolm Gladwell? No. He is a Canadian writer. He is a real outside the box thinker. He's a really, uh, he has a book called Outliers, which is exceptional. And if anyone wants to just a great read, go get Outliers. Anyway, one of the things that he writes about in Outliers is he's talking about the people who are, maybe, I don't even know if this is in Outliers or if this is in one of his other books. I think it's Outliers. Anyway, he's talking about the exceptional, exceptional people among us. Like what made Bill Gates, Bill Gates? Mm-hmm. What made Paul McCartney and John Lennon what they were and on and on. And his answer, when you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world is they were, they happened at exactly the right moment in history. Bill Gates could only create Microsoft because the home computer had been created shortly before. Yeah. Had Bill Gates come along 15 years before he did, Bill Gates would not have been, he would have done something probably successfully, but Paul McCartney, rock music and that kind of music had just been changing. If Paul McCartney came along 15 years before, well, you can make the case listening to Ron Joyce that that's the same with Tim Hortons. Had he been 10 years early, this thing may have died before it started. Yeah. It's funny how it all just, just the right time, right place. It just all comes together, right? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were listening to that 2015 interview with Ron Joyce who passed away today, uh, about the early days of Tim Hortons and founding Tim Hortons. And we were talking about Malcolm Gladwell's theory and others about it's the right place and it's the right time. And it's, there are factors beyond just your own excellence or your own brilliance or no matter who you are, uh, anybody who has done something truly amazing has had external factors as well as just their own brilliance, I think. I think maybe there's examples that someone wants to mm. say, but for the most part, there you have to have landed at the right moment in time for your genius of whatever that is. I mean, if Beethoven had not come along when he did before classical, I mean, I mean you, you just, you could play this game forever. Oh yeah. But you were mentioning during the break, uh, this is Super Bowl weekend mm-hmm. and we have two people that fall into that category of that discussion, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, the coach, the quarterback. You, you say what you were saying. Yeah, I, I almost said, you know, if uh, if Bill Belichick had come along without Tom Brady, would Bel- Bill Belichick be known as the you know, this you know amazing winning coach that he is? But then I stopped and and twisted it and 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 turned it around and said, you know, if if Tom Brady hadn't come around at the time when Bill Belichick was the head coach of the Patriots, you know, would he be widely pretty much probably undisputed now as the greatest quarterback of all time, you know? Uh, and so, <laughs> you know, I, I, for one, like to think that Brady wouldn't be the greatest of all time if Belichick weren't there because I'm a Bills fan and being in the AFC East and I'm tired of the being dominated. <laughs> right. And, and, um, and I, so, you know, and when it was in the main Manning and Brady days, I was always, uh, I like Peyton Manning better than, you know, Manning's better than Brady. Um, but then you had the people saying, well, it's the Super Bowl wins. That's what counts. And, you know, and you can, you can go down the line, but I think, that, I think that, look, Tom Brady has a, 
um, you know, a competitive spirit, maybe unlike, you know, anyone who's ever played uh, any sport, you know, right up there with the top competitive spirits that anyone, you know, would have as an athlete. Um, you know, the game's never over. He's, he's going to find a way to get it done. But could he be doing that if it was not for Bill Belichick? There is involvement from Belichick, yeah. And there's also the issue of how the game is played right now. It is a, a league that is it, the way the style is. When, when Tom Brady has arrived in the NFL, the style is conducive to the way he plays the game as opposed to some eras when it was just basically handing the ball off. Yeah, have uh, a good defense and hand the ball off, right? Uh, there's there's all kinds of parts of this. And it, again, it, it, to me, it goes to that exact same point that we've just been talking about is that in order to be that person that has that unique position in whatever they're doing, there are external factors that have played into that. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's a perfect example. And I think it's the, you know, I, there's a, there's a documentary and I, I'm telling you, everybody should watch it. Set your PVR. I think it's on tomorrow night at nine o'clock on CNN All right. and it's called three identical strangers. And I'm not going to give it away. I'll, I'll tell you the very beginning because I'm not really giving anything away. Uh, it's about three triplets who were who didn't know each other existed. That's all wow. I'm going to tell you. And it's a fascinating, fascinating story. But that touches on the long-standing debate. By the way, it's nine o'clock on CNN tomorrow. I believe three identical strangers. You really should make a point of watching it. Mm. But that goes to that debate that's been on forever about nature versus nurture. Is it your genes that make you special or is it your environment that makes you special or makes you different or makes you, you, whatever that is? Well, this is the same thing. Is it you that makes, if you're, if you're an exceptional, whatever, is it you or is it you plus your environment or is it your environment? Yeah. I I think it's, it's gotta be a combination of, you know, I, I think that, um, there have been great quarterbacks, you know, I, I don't think that anybody could, could sit there and say, you know, um, Dan Marino was a great quarterback, but Brady is hands down better than Dan Marino. I mean, you know, throwing the ball and, and, and just knowledge of the game and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's hard to compare the two in kind of different eras as well, but you look at the team that's around, Marino, the coach, you know, all that stuff, right? Um, I think it's a combination. I think if you're, you know, you're good enough, you're in the league. Brady was, and this is the the problem with the with the draft, but, you know, he was, what, 257th overall, we always hear. He was the ninth or 12th round or something, you know, and so nobody's really even going to, you know, if he even makes the news for being a pick that high, that's something, right? Um, and here he is as going down in history as probably the best to ever play, right? But I, it, but it's the, you know, he had skills, but it was the time that he came in. It was the coach, the rest well, of the team. Well, look at another example from sports. It's not from football. Another yeah. example, though, the Montreal Canadiens, for those who remember, can remember back to the 70s, the Montreal Canadiens got Guy Lafleur because they made a trade with the LA Kings. It was the Kings or the California Seals. One of those California teams had the rights to the first overall draft pick. The Canadians acquired that. They get to draft Guy Lafleur. So Lafleur now lands in, with the Montreal Canadiens in the 70s with maybe the greatest team in history. Mm-hmm. Had he been 
on the California Seals or LA Kings, what would our what would Guy Lafleur have been? He would have been a good hockey player, there's no question. Mm-hmm. But would he have been Guy Lafleur? No. Or if uh, Wayne Gretzky, with the situation that arose where he ended up in Edmonton, what if Wayne Gretzky had ended up on one of those crappy Toronto Maple Leaf teams? Yeah. Of the late 70s yeah. and into the early 80s with Harold Ballard as the owner. Would mm-hmm. Wayne Gretzky have been Wayne Gretzky? There are, you can't, as I say, you can't take away the external forces, mm-hmm. I don't think, even with the greatest people, the I greatest agree. things that, that people have done. And, and I say this, I, I looked it up during the break. It is outliers that you would, that if you want to read this, it's Malcolm Gladwell. And he, he goes down a list. Uh, he points to one of the really interesting ones. He is a Canadian guy, by the way. And one of the interesting ones is he points to the first quarter rule, which is he discovered, and it's a longstanding theory. He didn't discover it. He, mm-hmm. he writes about it. Hockey players born in the first three months of every year have a vastly greater chance of making it to the NHL than those born April and later. Huh. And so he's looking at this and saying, well, wait a second, why is that happening? Like the, it, and, and the examples he uses in the book, he looked at the World Junior Tournament one year and something like 80% of the players were born in January, February, or March. And now. you're saying, okay, so why? Well, so you start to do the research. Back when they're five years old or six or seven and they're first trying out for rep teams, who are the kids who are going to make the early rep teams? Well, they're the kids probably at that age because the age gap is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. They're the big kids. Yeah. If I'm born in January and I'm going against a kid who's born in December and we're seven, that's a long part of your life that you have spent ahead of that other kid. You're bigger and stronger and faster. Yeah. And so those kids make the team. And then for that next year, they get all the coaching and all the extra ice time and they get better. And then when tryouts come around again, well, the kid who was born in December is now not only still smaller, but he's way behind. Yeah. So there's parts of this, all these factors that play into, it's not just you with your unique individual genius that makes you that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think I have, you know, annoying Patriots friends, uh, <laughs> you know, fans that are friends of mine who, who would argue that, no, it's just, you know, you could put Brady on any team with any coach and, you know, he still would be the greatest of all time. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think, you know, he still would have thrown for a lot of yards and, you know, but. Well, what would Dan Marino have been on this team? Would, if Dan Marino had been with Bill Belichick and willing to play Bill Belichick style. Yeah. Would we be talking about Dan Marino? And again, if the timing had been right. and everything else, pick almost any quarterback. Would Do you believe that that would have happened? Or do you believe that Tom Brady going to... Look, I don't believe that Tom Brady would have been a great quarterback if he had been aligned with a terrible coach. Right. If you have a coach who's an idiot. Yeah. But if he's even with a competent coach, would Tom Brady have done what he did? I don't think so. I think he, you know, he would have been uh, middle of the road, um, you know, but, uh, you know, I don't think, like, take a, I don't know, take Favre, for example, you know, a lot of gunslinger, a lot of touchdowns, a lot of yards, but a lot of interceptions. But could he have, he couldn't have played for Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick would have got rid of him because he would have driven him nuts. Yeah. Because that's not his controlled style. Anyway, to me, it's a, it's a fascinating one that just goes to the idea of 
you have you have input for sure. There's mm-hmm. no question. I mean, all these people that we're talking about, Ron Joyce, right at the top of the list. I mean, Ron Joyce didn't just buy the Tim first Tim Hortons branch and then go home and let it ride. I mean, he worked his fingers to the bone to make that thing go. And all these other guys did too. So you do have input, but it's not just your input. No. There are other external factors and which takes me to the, the other idea. There are those in our society that would argue for absolute equality. It's impossible. It's impossible because of those factors that we can't, there are factors we cannot control. Mm-hmm. There just are. Yeah. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.